Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Dr. Duena Welch. Duena applies social science to people's real-life relationship issues. She is the author of Love Factually, 10 Proven Steps from I Wish to I Do, which uses science to guide men and women through every stage of dating from before they meet until they commit. Her second book, Love Factually for Single Parents and Those Who Date Them, releases worldwide in January. In addition, Dr. Welch has been a professor at universities in Florida, California, and Texas, and she's contributed to NPR, PBS, LA Talk Radio, Red Book, Time, The Daily Mail, Huffington Post, Psychology Today, Exo Jane, Psych Alive, eHarmony, Plenty of Fish, and numerous other major media outlets. She coaches men and women around the world who want more love in their lives via Skype, phone, and FaceTime. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me on. This is great. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into this work that you do? Absolutely. It's so funny. Um, So my PhD is in memory and aging, which isn't particularly related to this, (laughs) but I have a PhD in psychology and I was always interested in love relationships, but I was interested in love relationships from a very personal perspective, not a research perspective. And basically I sucked at dating. And so uh, I decided to start learning about successful dating on my own as kind of my own little nerdy project to, I had a, a bad heart break and I decided, you know, it seems like there's a scientist studying nearly any topic you can think of. I bet at least one person is studying the choosing formation and successful carrying on of a great love relationship. And it turned out there were many, many scientists doing that. There just weren't a lot of popular books about it. So I started making a journal about things that I would and would not be doing going forward and then just kind of tracking my own results. And I wasn't doing this for anyone but myself. Um, But I'm very happily married and uh, people started coming to me and asking me to please help them with what I did. And my husband began to insist that I write a book or at least a blog. So initially I had a blog and then eventually one of my fans started trying to string together um, blog posts into a book and that's when I realized that it really was time. When somebody sends you your own book, it's really time to write one. So uh, that culminated in love factually. That's an awesome story. And uh, out of curiosity, so how did you end up meeting your husband? I met him online. Yeah, which <laughs> it's so funny. Um, when I met him, the study that I'm going to refer to hadn't been done yet. So I didn't know about this research. Of course, there's a lot of research that I don't know about because research is constantly coming out and I'm having to update myself. But there was a study that was done during the period of time when he and I met that showed that in those years, a full third of the people who married had met online, which I find just amazing. Not just people dated from online, but a full third of the people who'd married, and they were slightly happier than people who'd met any other way. What was the reasons behind that? 
Well, it's interesting. So the lead scientist on that project is John Cassiopo, who he, he's kind of famous for research on loneliness. And uh, but he had been commissioned to lead this research and the funder was eHarmony. And so the reason I was interested in this study was um, because I was at that point doing a lot of science writing about relationship science for my blog and for other publications that you mentioned. And so I didn't trust data that showed that eHarmony and other places like that were the best way to meet someone, right? Because they funded the study. But it turned out that um, the people who collected the data for the Harris, it was a Harris survey or Harris poll, including John Cassiopo, those folks had complete latitude. They did not owe anything to eHarmony. Um, they did the science the right way. They gave me access to their entire data set and every question that was asked, exactly how the math was done. And it was all legit. So I got to interview him and I asked him, I said, so, you know, what I didn't see is why? Why would people who meet this way be happier, only slightly happier, but happier? And he said, well, first of all, the reason that it's only slightly happier is, you know, you have to figure that many, many factors go into how happily married you are. And the way you meet is just going to be one of dozens of factors. So we wouldn't expect the effect to be very strong, but it was there nonetheless, which is kind of impressive. And we start talking about why that could be. One of the reasons is, you know, let's say that um, I ride a subway every day and I see somebody that I think is really attractive, say Monday, Wednesday, Friday. The thing is, I know that this person is attractive, but I don't know, is he looking for a partner? Does he have any similarity with me other than that we take the same subway ride on Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays? And, um, you know, I, I really don't know anything about him. I don't even know necessarily how to get him to approach me or how I should approach him. Whereas online, you just immediately leap past most of those hurdles. So, you know, for example, eHarmony sorts people by some level of similarity. And it turns out that similarity is a terrific predictor of lifetime satisfaction with a partner. But I will say uh, eHarmony, out of all the ways to meet people, eHarmony turned out to be slightly happier, the marriages formed there, turned out to be slightly happier, the marriages formed anywhere else, but it was also interesting that the very least happy marriages were also formed on eHarmony. Isn't that interesting? That is, did they figure out a cause for each? They did not. They didn't know, you know, it was really kind of bimodal, but I will say when I published an article for Psychology Today about this, and I sent it to Dr. Cassiopo, he congratulated me on being balanced about it um, because I guess most people just paid attention to the good news and he was equivalently interested in, you know, why would there also be, why would it be bimodal? You either wound up in this really happy union or one that was really quite awful compared to others. And we don't know. That's fascinating. It makes sense. The idea that you have added information when you first approach or begin talking to somebody and you can use that information to find whether or not you're more likely to be compatible. It's our clients urban area like New York City, I'm like, you can go and pick somebody up on any night in New York City if you have enough social awareness. I'm like, but it's like duck hunting. You shoot a gun in the air and you're going to get a duck. You don't know what duck you're going to get. <laughs> you don't know what you're, the person you're bringing home could be crazy or insane. Or, and it's probably not a healthy way to build a relationship. <laughs> and so well, it's, it's, a very, it's a very costly way because if you're a guy and you're kind of out there in the wild, um, as you put it, hunting, 
mostly what you're going to use initially are your sense of it, it's mostly your sense of sight because men strongly value youth and beauty for some very uh, relevant evolutionary reasons. But youth and beauty doesn't tell you anything necessarily about the person that goes with that youth and beauty. So about 80% of my clients are male and many of them have told me that the beauty bias has really, um, to continue the metaphor, shot them in the, in the foot and reloaded. They have found out that, you know, only after they got sexually involved and fell deeply in love did they kind of ask themselves, is this the right relationship to be in? Do I really have enough in common with this person? Wow, she doesn't really treat me very well. Do I really want to be here? Things that, you know, um, if they dated a different way, they could have asked the relevant questions pretty quickly in the process instead of going so far down the road. So some of my clients have been in really unworkable relationships for years, or maybe they're going through a divorce. Um, and they wish that they had saved them, themselves the time and the heartache and also, frankly, the money. And some of them have kids and now they have to work out custody arrangements and it just goes on and on and on. So yeah, dating the right way actually turns out to be a pretty good deal. I heard a story I remember years ago from a client of mine and they were talking about how they knew somebody who, he was a man, he married this woman and this girl was absolutely gorgeous, absolutely beautiful woman. And he was an academic super very intelligent guy and she didn't come from that world and they said that he always sort of resented her and it affected the relationship because he treated her like she was she was stupid and sort of that came off and part of that might have been sort of his own shortcoming some of it might have been uh also just she was a bad match he selected for a set of traits and he probably should have selected for another set of traits because he wasn't happy i mean i i also think of what was his name prince charles Right. So Prince Charles married an incredibly charismatic woman and very beautiful woman, but was probably the wrong woman for him. Well, he had already met the right woman for him and his family wouldn't assent to the marriage. Yeah. But it's interesting because you do see this come up. And, and I think for a lot of the, of the guys listening in and girls who are listening to this too probably go through a similar experience that oftentimes we don't really know what we want or what we need until after we experience it. And these biases. Uh, I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit more about it, but there's definitely strong associations where people think because somebody is beautiful, they're also smart and they have a lot of other traits that they might want and they give them sort of like these extra points in these areas, even though they might not have them. Have you seen some of the research around that? Oh, absolutely. Yes. In fact, there's a, in social psychology, there's a phrase that describes what you just said, which is what is beautiful is good. There's such a strong perception that beauty equals goodness. We can even see it in folklore around the world. You can always tell who's good and who's bad in folklore, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's the beautiful person is good and the bad person's ugly, right? Yes, with very few exceptions, this is true. Occasionally, there's an evil queen who's, uh, I mean that in the evil queen sort of way. <laughs> Occasionally, there's an evil queen who is really beautiful. And there's an, uh, an older woman who appears to, um, be all broken down who turns into a beautiful person. But the truth of the matter is that by the end of the story, the person who possesses physical beauty is the person who also is good in nearly every way. There was a study done with men where they were given, and these men were all at Harvard. And I think that turns out to be a, rele a relevant feature of the study. These men were given pictures of women and they were asked to rate these women's beauty. 
Now, they didn't know any of these women. All they were given was a headshot. They were not given any further information. So they're all asked to rate on a 1 to 10 scale how beautiful is this woman. They're also asked to rate on a 1 to 10 scale things like how good in bed is she? How warm and personable is she? How intelligent is she? How socially capable is she? And what fascinated me, first of all, and I haven't seen anybody else talk about this, but you've got this group of Harvard men and not one of them said, apparently no one said, well, I mean, I can rate how good looking she is, but all I have is a picture. I really can't rate this other stuff. They all rated it as if that were legit. And interestingly, right along with the um, what is beautiful is good hypothesis, beautiful women. First of all, we think beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but men everywhere all over the world know who the tens are all over the world. So there was a lot of consensus on who was more beautiful and who was less so. And the more beautifully a woman was ranked, the more highly she was ranked in all the other dimensions, if I can remember it. There was one exception around the world. I think it's uh, sometimes beautiful people are considered to be a little bit aloof or spoiled. But uh, but that's it. Other than that, you know, it's not fair. But even even fifth graders, teachers judge better looking fifth graders as more capable in school. I mean, it, it's very far reaching. Beautiful people get lighter prison sentences. So it's not fair, but it is what it is. And it's certainly uh, I see it increasingly interestingly now with my female clients. I see the beauty bias that you know, because apps like Tinder create this perception that there is an endless supply of men, women have become more picky about a man's appearance than they are in real life, if they meet you in real life. And so um, they're swiping left on guys that are wonderful, wonderful guys. It's funny because um, a lot of women approach me after reading the book. They write to me and they say, you know, you just have the best husband in the world. I wish I could meet somebody like him. And I think to myself, you are probably meeting someone similar to him on a weekly basis if you're dating online. He's a very good man, but very good men are not in as short a supply as people think they are. It's just that they don't always have an amazing external package. And when people meet organically, sometimes they're more willing to do that. But I'm telling you on Tinder, women just, they're almost as youth and beauty oriented right now as men are. And it's really, um, I guess it surprised me. Actually, it didn't surprise me. No? Well, you're a guy, so it wouldn't surprise you because... The reason why it didn't su surprise me is I, I think that there's this, for a long time I was reading that men select based on youth and beauty and women select based on sort of status and resources. I would hear this perpetuate over and over and over. And from the my first days as, as a dating coach, what I realized is that people select based on what they perceive as being valuable. And... Oftentimes that's relative. So if a woman is younger and she doesn't have a lot of status and power and wants it, it's a way for her to get it, right? She goes on a few dates with guys her age. She likes dating the cute guy in high school or college and she gets out into the real world. And she also realizes she likes going on vacations to Europe or to other countries and going to nice dinner. And so she can date a guy who's a little bit less attractive. We get, she, she gets all these other benefits. Um, and so. I start to see and started to see an adjustment in behavior based on some of these variables, right? 
like uh, in high school where or college where everybody has, we'll say high school is a better example. Everybody is about the same social class. It's easier to select based on on looks, just dating the cute boy. Um, you get out into a larger pool of people where there's sort of more variables and there's bigger differences. And I started seeing these changes in behavior. And I, and I see the same thing with guys. Guys generally will select based on youth and beauty. But then there's a subset of men who will date older women because, again, they're looking to acquire status and power and resources. So, so that's really interesting. One of the things I like about science is that it takes us out of our own experience and it tells us with real clarity what most people most of the time are doing. And of course, nothing can tell us what all the people are doing all the time. That doesn't exist. But relationship science, which by which I mean biology, chemistry, social psychology, general psychology, anthropology, um, and sociology. When you look at the amalgamation of all the, these different sciences, they're very good at predicting, especially psychology, because we have some experiments there, at predicting what most people are going to do most of the time. So, for example, I have known women who were not very financially focused. But if I were to say that, um, for example, that changes over the lifespan or that that's the norm, I would actually be grotesquely wrong because there's now research done in 32 different societies, including our own. And this research has been conducted over a generation now, actually. It's been conducted uh, you know, numerous times. It almost doesn't even matter how you collect the data. For example, you can look at, well, do lesbians care about a partner's wealth? Yeah, they do. What about rich women? They don't need a partner's wealth. Do they care about a partner's wealth? Yes, in fact, it's been quantified. They expect a certain a, a partner, male or female, to have X percentage more resources than they themselves have. Women have not historically selected for youth and beauty in men. Um, but there are cougars. That's an exception, not a rule. But it's a very notable exception when you see a woman who's midlife or later who basically gets herself a boy toy, right? What's really interesting is I always assume those women went after those men, but it's actually the reverse. It's usually a man who has some physical beauty, but is really a fairly low status man. He wouldn't have a lot of pull with women his own age. So he goes older and he gets some resources and he gets a nicer lifestyle than he would have had. But the reason he doesn't have pull with younger women and women his own age is he doesn't have what women who can command more resources want. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes absolute sense. I think that you're absolutely right. The science is, from what I've seen, is very clear on this issue. I think when I start getting more granular and I look at individual sort of circumstances, I start to see different sets of behavior. Oh, definitely. Like a guy wrote to me the other day and he wanted to know, um, was it legit to be friends with a woman for a very long period of time in the hopes that someday she would date you? And I said, well, it's legit in the sense that we know that April Blesky and David Buss did research showing that about 55% of men who are friends with a woman are actually hoping to get into a relationship or would be open to a sexual relationship with that woman. You know, the old Harry Met Sally question of, um, you know, can women and men really just be friends? The answer is yes, women can. <laughs> and of course, men can too. But um, by and large, when women want to be friends, they really just want to be friends. And so what I said to him is that both in the world of mammals and specifically in the human realm, men who do that 
tend to be pretty low status and that women really like a man to show high status. And one of the markers of high status is the man confidently asks you out. He doesn't kind of bird dog it and just hang around and hope that something happens. Yeah, there's a great YouTube video. It went super viral. I'm um, still probably floating around somewhere on the internet where this guy walked around and asked women, could men and women just be friends? And asked men, could men and women just be friends? Asked the same question. It wasn't a scientific survey. It was probably edited to reinforce this idea. But uh, in the video, consistently women said yes. And then the guys said no. And then they asked the women in the video, do you think the guys who your friends would sleep with you? And in every situation, as they started to think about it, you realize they knew that they would. <laughs> and it was sort of a fascinating example, pop culture sort of video of exactly what you're describing. And I think the reason why it went so viral is it's consistent with a lot of people's experiences. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it... One of my most commented on blogs that I ever did was on this topic. And of course, I was addressing it from a scientific standpoint, but my writing is kind of like Dear Abby on science. It's just like the conversation we're having and it's based on science. It's not, I don't talk a lot about the studies and then give some advice at the end. It's the other way around. And so people were talking a lot about their own experiences with this. And it was really interesting how the men said, uh, women, you really need to listen to this. Like the science is not wrong. You need to get this. And the women were like, no, I'm just friends. But then I had several women who said, yeah, I noticed that when I got married, all of a sudden I had a lot fewer male friends. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of truth in that. And I think, but I also think that it has to do with some other variables. One of them is the fact that with men, men will try to get close to a woman in order to try to sleep with her, to try to date her, try to get in a relationship with her, to try to become her mate. And women are generally the selectors, at least in my observation and the things that I've read. Women are the ones who generally make the final choice. And if there's a situation where women, like let's say that they are trying to pursue a, a man and they're trying to create opportunities, I see a series of behaviors. One is uh, they will try to put themselves in situations where they're close to the guy, whether they invite him to do something or they have an event or they show up someplace where they think he's going to be. But they'll try to put them in situations where they can either progress things or uh, the guy will have the opportunity to progress things. It's essentially a way for them to test it. And if they do that a few times, the guy doesn't advance in a public space. They might try to do this in a more private situation where uh, maybe they invite them to go for a walk and then invite them up to their apartment. They try to, again, try to nurture the situation. And if the guy doesn't escalate, one of the things I see that's most, most often is women will start making assumptions like, well, is he have a girlfriend? Is he dating somebody? Is he gay? And so they'll, they'll start to make sort of assumptions about who this guy is and his behavior and things about him and why he might not be making the advance that she wants him to make. And then oftentimes, if he doesn't do that, they'll just screen him out. They'll stop talking to them. They'll blow him off because they feel rejected. And so it's really inter interesting. I'm curious if you've ever read anything on this, but it's sort of a pattern I see over and over and over with women where guys will continue to try to hold on and, and get close to somebody. Women, I don't see do that quite as much. So, so one way to summarize what we know now from again, a whole generation of studies done in more than 32, on every continent and in more than 32 different countries and cultures, is that if you were gonna sum up women's mating psychology in one sentence, here's the sentence. Women are looking, actively looking, 
for a mate who willingly provides and protects. He is both able and willing to provide and protect, or she. But women, regardless of sexual orientation, are looking for this. So they want a provider and a protector. And this implies that a man has the ability to provide and protect, so he has some resources. But much more important to women is whether he has the willingness to provide and protect. The janitor, who is very generous with his resources, with his mate, is more happily married than the rich man who is stingy with his resources. So the, the generosity is, is really a key feature. And uh, to summarize something that you were kind of getting at, <laughs> it seems to me that both sexes think that the other sex is doing all the selecting and that they themselves, you know, are just kind of left wondering why this isn't working out. Um, and so I say men have the right of pursuit and women have the right of refusal. What this means is you'll note that these women are putting themselves in circumstances where the man can pursue them, but they're very rarely asking the man to marry them or asking the man on a date or, or, or. Um, they're just making themselves available for the male to pursue. And if he doesn't, yeah, a lot of women get offended because they don't want to think it's them. It's got to be a circumstance. But um, women actually initiate most relationships. They just don't do it by walking over and saying, I'd like to go out with you. But uh, Monica Moore and then there are, she was in the 80s and then there have been lots of studies since then. Monica Moore went to bars and looked at, you know, who approached whom and exactly how did this happen. And studies are pretty consistent that the number one strategy that women employ is what I call the smile and look combo. Women smile at a specific man and they look into his eyes while smiling. And it's not one of those fake smiles where the eyes don't crinkle. It's a full on, you delight me kind of smile. And they do this for several seconds at a time, up to 30 times an hour to just one guy. And she is saying, come hither, big boy. I mean, that is what she's saying, but she's not likely to walk over and, and initiate a conversation. She's more likely to put herself in the environment as you've observed, and then to give come hither signals. And if he doesn't follow up on that, She's more likely to, frankly, correctly read that for some reason that she will never know, he's not coming over. And it could be that he's gay. It could be that he's in a relationship. It could be he's just not that into you. Could be a lot of things. But all of it adds up to move on, smile at somebody else. <laughs> I had a conversation with a woman I was coaching recently in a class, and she said she was out at a bar with a girl. And this friend of hers was saying that she could pick up any guy. And she goes, is that true? And I said, the answer is no. But it's actually not necessarily a bad mindset to have when you're out trying to meet men. And I said, let me sort of explain and walk you through this. And and one of the things that what I said was that what she is doing is she's she's going out with that mindset and then she's doing exactly what you're describing. She's looking at the men that she's interested and then she's testing to see whether or not there is any interest from them by the way that they approach. But she's actively doing that. that. That's one of the things that she's doing. And that mindset is helping her when she's in those environments to have the confidence to do that. And yes, exactly. And I think a lot of it, Chris, is unconscious. Um, some women do this consciously. But for example, when I was just a young single girl out in the wild and I hadn't read any relationship science yet. I noticed that when I was single, I met a lot more men than when I was dating someone. 
Well, what was the variable there? I mean, I wasn't wearing a ring in any case. I, what was the variable? Why was I getting approached so much more? Well, because I was more approachable. When I was single, I was looking up and I was smiling and I was making eye contact. And when I was not single, I wasn't doing those things. I was just going to the store and, you know, picking out pears. I wasn't, I wasn't looking at anybody over the produce. So, um, yeah, that's how it works. The reason I brought up women valuing provision and protection is men who don't pursue generally don't provide and protect. So women have learned, and this is evolutionary psychology, which is largely unconscious. Women have, have learned and passed down to their daughters over uh, evolutionary time that if they have to take the step of actively pursuing a man um, and asking him out and asking him to pay the dinner bill and asking him to pick them up, if they have to tell him how to behave, this is not going to be a good mate in the long term. And he is perhaps, again, speaking in ancestral terms, he is perhaps going to abandon you and your children, which could be a death sentence for all of you. And that's where our psychology comes from. It doesn't come from there's a grocery store on one corner and a Starbucks on the other, and you have a job and you can provide for yourself. It comes from a time when that was a lot more difficult. I want to come back to this because I think that there's biological and cultural drivers, and I'm wondering if you agree with that and if you can expand on that. But before I do, I want to go back to this example of this woman in the bar, because I think that there's some things that are pertinent and I also want your thoughts on it. So the first thing that this girl would do would say she could date any guy. She would, she was telling the other girls that she could pick up any guy. And the second thing she would do is she would look directly at them. And going back to your example, one of the things that I've observed is oftentimes I can see what girls are looking to be picked up. And I've told my clients, that girl right there and her two friends, they're looking to meet boys. And guys have argued with me, especially if they're, it's the first time they've ever walked into my classes. And I said, watch them. And one of the things that I'm observing, there's a lot of things, right? Um, they're the small behaviors that sort of drive us throughout our life. Little things like somebody wants to get more attention. So they put on a little bit more accessories or their scent is a little bit stronger because they really want to impress somebody. So they put an extra pump of perfume. <laughs> uh, and so they have a sort of a stronger scent. They're wearing stronger scents. Another thing is people tend to face the things that they value. It starts, sometimes it's their face. Sometimes it's their feet. You see a group of three or four people and one person, let's say it's a woman is looking away or her feet are facing another direction, even though she is in a group. And I usually just tell my clients, I say, well, there's something else that she's valuing. It's not the conversation. Maybe she's looking for somebody to come into the bar that she's waiting to meet. Maybe she's on the, she's scanning because she's looking to meet somebody, but she's there with her friends, but her mind is someplace else. And whether she's aware of that or not, those behaviors are very clear. If somebody knows what to look for, do you see similar have you seen similar things both in yourself and in, in research oh yeah timothy perper did some research on this where he talked about mirroring and that's largely unconscious people which is really once you know what to look for it actually gives you quite an advantage because you're seeing what the people themselves don't necessarily see if you are say you know at a social function maybe you do a meetup and um a woman smiles at you and makes direct eye contact and you walk over to talk to her. 
if she starts lifting her glass at the same time you do, if she smiles when you do, if she uh, leans toward you when you lean toward her, if her body position starts to mimic your body position, this is an indicator that she's into the conversation and she is enjoying you and that she's liking you. If she leans forward and brushes any part of you with her hair or um, if she uh, touches your arm, that's a direct hit. You know, some women, of course, get a lot bolder than that, but that's as bold as most women are going to get. And again, it's it's not conscious. They do this almost because they can't help themselves. So um, I, what I've told my clients is don't mirror people like crazy. I mean, they they may notice and think you're a little bit nuts, but do notice whether they're mirroring you. Notice whether the vibe is there. And yeah, if somebody if she's talking to another guy and she keeps looking over his shoulder and turning away from him, she's not into him. You should wait until, until, uh, you know, he turns away for a second and move on in. Something else that was happening in that conversation that this girl didn't recognize. And she's a bright girl, went to Harvard business school, super smart, very beautiful. I mean, I think that she's a, an amazing catch for the right guy. And there's something else that was happening as this girl started talking about how she could pick up any guy that my client started questioning herself. And so there was sort of a psychological game that was also being played at the same time. Between two women? You Between mean? the women in the group. Yes. Well, you know, we talk about how men and women play mating games and they do just like birds do, by the way, we don't call it a mating game. We call it a dance for them. Humans have a dance also. But really the, the sharpest competition in game playing is actually between members of the same sex if they're looking for a member of the opposite sex. So for example, uh, right now there's a real shortage of Mormon men compared to Mormon women. And um, so the women have started getting breast jobs in record numbers. These are, these are women who are already really young and really beautiful who are getting surgery to enhance what did not need enhancing because the intersex um, competition is so cutthroat because these women want to marry a man of their faith and there aren't enough men who are staying in the faith. In LA, you see this a lot, right? With You have beauty queens from all over the United States and in some cases all over the world. Like The girl was like the prom queen or the prettiest girl at her high school and she moved to LA because people tell her she should be an actress and she, you get there and everybody's beautiful or a lot of people are beautiful, maybe not everybody. And so you start seeing people do more plastic surgery and that type of stuff because the normal things that it's weird to say normal, but the normal things that women do when competing against other women, they wear heels to make themselves taller or make their legs look better or wear fillers in their hair or eyelashes or makeup. Like these things that women have normally, I mean, it's weird to say normal because if guys did them, uh, people would probably give them a hard time in most cases. Um, but the things that women do to compete against other women to make themselves more attractive weren't enough. And so they resort to that next level of competition, which could consist of surgeries or lip fillers. Or Do you see where I'm going with this? Oh, I do. And it can also consist of lying about their rivals. This fascinates me. But all over the world, when women have a rival for a particular man, they will talk to, they'll talk to the man and say, mm, I think her thighs are a little thick, don't you? Now, what's fascinating to me about this, Chris, is the guy has eyes in his head. Like he can see whether or not he's attracted to this other woman. But strangely enough, his perception is often shifted 
by a, a woman competitor with this other girl who says, yeah, her thighs are heavy. Or I heard she slept with the whole football team. You know, women know how to lie about a rival. By the way, men do too. Men will claim that he's already got a wife or he's already got a girlfriend because at some implicit level, most people really do understand the human mating mind, which is men value fertility and fidelity. So she slept with the whole football team is not a good fidelity bet, for example. Um, and they value status in the sense that being with a good looking woman not only gives him better odds of casting his genes into the future because she's likely to be fertile, but it also gives him status with other men. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Ray about Ray Charles, but he always wanted to know how good looking the women were that he was involved with. And he grabbed their wrists. He grabbed their wrists, but he also asked other people. that The movie didn't show that, but he grabbed their wrists. He wanted to make sure he was with a woman who was not just beautiful to him. He was never going to see him. He wanted to make sure he was with a woman who was empirically beautiful. That gave him more status. And he's not exceptional there. That's, you know, I, I had a hypothesis years ago that um, if signs of fertility and fidelity were truly human universals, then blind men should value them as much as sighted men do. And they do. I, I'm lazy. So somebody else did the research and it turned out I was right, though. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, the sexes have these things that they value and when they want to compete against one another, they will lie in the direction of exploiting the other sex's mating psychology. So, you know, she's not really very high status because her thighs are fat or, you know, she's not going to be faithful to you because she slept with the whole football team or something like that. And then men, of course, say, well, you know, he doesn't really own that car or he's deeply in debt or, um, you know, he just lost his job or he's really married because women want to hear he has resources and he's generous with them and he's available to devote them to you. Psychological warfare. It is. Yeah, absolutely. And it works. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I see this all the time, whether it's everyone who's listening to this sees this or hears this all the time. What all you have to do is go on social media and sort of see the way people behave or listen to the way people interact in your office or even when you're hanging out with your friends. I, I mean, guys have a, uh, as a young guy, if you're listening to this, you might have a group of friends and, and there's sort of this hierarchy that's developed. And when guys are teasing each other, wrestling, screwing around, like they, they're sort of negotiating this hierarchy and that, that hierarchy has an effect. I, I know when, at one point my little brother would uh, called me up and He's married now and has a couple of beautiful kids. And he had told me, he goes, you know, I, I need your advice. And he never asked me, you know, as a dating coach, but would never ask me questions. But he goes, I have this situation where I have this guy that I hang out with. And I knew the guy. And he goes, every time we go, he picks up the girl. And I said, well, what's happening? He goes, usually he doesn't ever approach women. He goes, I do. I approach the women. And then he comes in at some point after I'm interacting with them. And then he just starts capping on me, teasing me and making fun of me. I said, what do you do? And he goes, I usually just don't say anything. And he goes, but the next thing I know, like he's pulled the girl away and they're like making out <laughs> or he has their phone number. And he goes, it happens consistently and I don't really know what to do. And, uh, and, <laughs> and do you want to give me your take on what was oh, happening? Well, for, I'm just thinking the old phrase with friends like that, who needs enemies? <laughs> it's, it's... <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. So women love humor in all my years of coaching and writing. I've never yet met a woman who said, ah, oh, humor, I could take it or leave it. They want a man who has a sense of humor. A sense of humor is actually a pretty good 
indicator of a man's intellect and capabilities and resources. So it's not, it's not foolproof, but it's a pretty good indicator, and which is, you know, some scientists hypothesize that's why women value it so much. Whether or not we agree with that, I think it's probably true, but whether or not we agree with it, the fact is women just, they index humor quite enormously. And so what happened is this other guy used your brother as the fall guy for his jokes, and he made the woman laugh, and she remembered who made her laugh. It's funny, I've started working with some men who, guys that are just a real catch, but they're not getting any traction with women. And part of the issue was, although they have a really good sense of humor, their sense of humor only comes out after they know you. Like I would notice after I'd had three or four sessions with them, this guy is super funny, but I didn't see that the first three times we met. And so I started coaching them to go ahead and show that sense of humor right away. So if they had uh, called someone and she didn't respond, and um, or they had written to someone and she didn't respond, that give it a week. And then to reconnect, say, you know, you're probably going out with that guy who plays Thor right now. But if you aren't, would you consider calling me back? <laughs> That's funny. And it has worked every time, by the way. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great line. You know, I mean, every time, just inject some humor in the situation, and it, it's great because it lets you save face. If for some reason she's not into you, she's still going to have a favorable impression of you, and she's not forgetting you. I think that's a great point that you made. Is when people get comfortable with somebody, their humor opens up. And one of the things that I, I've observed is that there's a hierarchy in every sort of social circle, whether it's someone's family or work or a group of friends, anytime there's people, there's a hierarchy that innately develops. And what happens is when somebody is at the top of the hierarchy, they generally have a higher range of behavior. And I hear that with voice, maybe they're louder or they'll talk about topics other people won't because they're not really as concerned for the validation of the other members of the group. Maybe it's behavior. They take up more physical space uh, with their movement, maybe by throwing their stuff around, they throw their jacket somewhere, whatever. There's all kinds of different ways this manifests, but I see this larger range of behavior. And there's also sort of like this psychological space that um, is taken up. There's physical space and verbal space and psychological space, but there's this increased sort of range of space. And oftentimes if guys go into a new group where they don't feel comfortable with somebody, I, I've observed women do this too, but they're worried about the validation of the people around them, how they fit into that hierarchy. They might not be doing this on a conscious level. Uh, maybe they are, but it decreases their range of behavior because they're worried about the judgment of the people around them. And as they start to get comfortable with what either they're not no longer concerned about the judgment of the people around them or, or less concerned, or they understand what those boundaries are. They've kind of defined in their mind what those boundaries are that they think that they have. Their range of behavior increases and they're more likely to test humor or say things that are sort of less than appropriate or whatever. And I'm not saying when I say less than appropriate, they're, they're testing the boundaries and oftentimes humor is sort of around those boundaries. Does this make any sense to you? It makes absolute sense to me. And in fact, some of the guys who've hired me, initially it amazed me that they found it necessary to hire a dating coach. And the reason it amazed me was these guys were the whole package. But then when we met, I could see that they were just a little reserved when they first met someone. And in an earlier generation, they wouldn't have been single for five minutes. But in this generation where you're expected to sparkle right off, and people aren't getting to know you necessarily organically. They're meeting you some other way. 
And you, even if they meet you organically, you're also competing with whatever they've got going on online. In that environment, they're at a little bit of a disadvantage. And so one of the things I work on with them is show who you are a little bit faster. And if you can't do that, say something direct like, you know what? I am enjoying getting to know you and I hope you're going to give this a shot because I'm worth getting to know. And by the way, that works when men say that, that, that is a, as long as they, they are not, you know, braggadocious, if they simply put it out there that it takes a little while to know them, but they promise to make it worth the wait that I've actually seen that get results. Why is that? I think it's because you have to have some level of mojo and confidence to say it. You know, there has never been a perfume called desperation, but there needs to be a cologne called self-confidence because there's just nothing sexier. One of the sexiest men I ever knew was short, fat, not need, and had short and had short, tiny hands and thinning hair. And I am telling you what, women could not get enough of this guy. Why was he sexy? He had so much self-confidence. I mean, this guy knew that he was a walking, talking ball of passion. He just, he knew it. He just had the mojo. Can you define what that is? Well, I think that's what's fascinating about it is that it seems undefinable, but I think that there, there actually is some definition to this. Um, things that he did, he made a lot of eye contact. He smiled a lot. He was not hesitant to touch a woman's small of her back or to touch her on the arm. He was not hesitant to give a woman a, a compliment. He, um, the way he walked, he had a presence about him. He, he wasn't meek. He didn't brag, but he seemed very assured, very self-assured of his place in the world. He had a way of speaking with other people that showed that he really wanted to hear what they had to say, and he had interesting things to say. When you added it all up, uh, he just was very, very appealing. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way, you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchrisma.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. It's funny because I think about that in relationship books. People always say, oh, just be yourself. And I think a lot of guys don't understand or misunderstand. I think a lot of people who give this advice misunderstand it. Um, they say, oh, you should just be yourself. And, and, I, and I'm going to use an example of this. I was coaching this guy um, at MIT and really bright guy. He's in a PhD there. And I worked with him a little bit on and off over the years. And he was showing me his dating 
happen. What no one knew at the time, I was taking class at Harvard and well, I was on a date and what the girl didn't know was that I was a dating coach and this guy was my client and it was the only time I could meet him. And so I told him, just drop by and I'll say you're my friend. And the girl was looking at his dating profile and she kept saying, oh, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's perfect. And and because he was trying to get, he had met me because he wanted to get feedback on his dating profile. And uh, she kept saying, oh, this is, this is you. It's perfect the way it is. And it's true. It was, but he, he looked at her and he was looking at me and he didn't want to say like what I did or who I was and sort of blow up himself in the process. And, and so he goes, he was like looking at me with desperation in his eyes and then looking back at her and look at me again. And he's like, yeah, but I'm not getting any matches. And that was the problem. He wasn't getting any matches at all. <laughs> and so he was being himself. But when people say be yourself, I think that there's a couple of different ways that you can think about this. One is that, yeah, if you just, if you're just yourself and, and somebody likes you for who you are, um, then you're going to find somebody who is probably a, a lot better match than you than if you're projecting a lot of bravado and, and showmanship to try to project what you think somebody is looking for. At the same time, I think for a lot of people who are listening to this, there's the way they behave and the way that they want to behave, but they're inhibited, right? So maybe they want to touch the small of somebody's back or hand or arm because they just want to touch somebody, but society tells them you're, you're, it's not appropriate to touch other people. So they're terrified of doing so. Or maybe, um, they think about sex, but they're uncomfortable talking about anything related to sexuality. And as a consequence of that, anytime it comes up, they subcommunicate that and you start to see that anxiety. The people around them pick that up as a sort of nonverbal or they pick it up through subcommunication. And so they close off that part of themselves to them. And so they start becoming more restricted. And when you describe this guy, what I hear is a guy who's, who's really comfortable with himself psychologically. It sounds like, I mean, I don't know what, where he is psychologically, but at least when it comes to being around women and his own sexuality, it sounds like he's very comfortable with himself and emotionally and as a consequence that was manifesting in his behavior and essentially what he became was uninhibited or less inhibited while also highly aware of where the limits or barriers are with each person oh yeah yeah he just exuded okayness with himself and with the world and also that he was very comfortable feeling sexually interested in someone in grad school, I knew a girl who dated him, and she said that um, when he kissed her goodbye, he leaned into her car and picked her up through the window and kissed her. I mean, it was like, she said she felt like she was with a caveman in the very best sense of the word, like this guy was not afraid. But he also had high social intelligence. If she had not wanted to be kissed, he wouldn't have done it. And that's the thing is dating is one long social intelligence test. And a lot of people worry about whether they really have what it takes. I also tell people to be who they are. For example, um, intelligent women should be intelligent. They should never dumb it down because guess who you wind up with if you dumb it down? Someone who doesn't get you. And that's not okay. You need to be with somebody who gets you. Um, there's a difference between that and constantly one-upping the guy. <laughs> Um, so yes, use your natural gifts, but use them to advantage. It's, there's are subtleties there that work well in a one-on-one -on -one coaching situation. And I always tell people, be who you are, unless you're someone negative and then try to be someone positive because the less, the rule of thumb is this, the less information any of us has about you, 
the more heavily we weigh every scrap of information we do have. So if I know that you are really negative, kind, generous, and honest, that's a lot worse than if I know you're kind, generous, and honest, and later on I find out you're negative. It matters when people find out things about you. So you want them to see your best foot forward, or as everybody's grandma told them, never get a second chance to make a good first impression. So make a good one. This, this is sort of a funny caveman story, and I can't believe I'm sharing this. Normally, I don't share too much stuff about my personal life. But one time I had, years ago, I picked this girl up, and really very beautiful girl, super nice. And it was like the end of the night, we were in line for pizza. Some guy was trying to talk to her, and he like clearly wanted to talk to her, didn't know what he was doing. And, and she started talking to me because he made her feel a little uncomfortable or whatever. Next thing I know, I talked to her. Um, clearly was attracted to me. I picked it up. Things escalated really quick. And I said, do you want to get out of here? And she goes, yeah, let's get out of here. So we get out of here and we start making out and I ask her, do you want to go home with, or do you want to hook up? We, we should get out of here. And she goes, okay, sure. And so then we, we decided we we're going to go to check into a hotel. And the hotel was like, in New York City, it was crazy expensive it's three in the morning is fifteen hundred dollars or something and uh and so i said well let's just we can go back to my place and and she goes okay and so it was her birthday and so that's part of the psychology she was on vacation it was her birthday she met a a cute boy and she was like screw it i'm gonna give myself a birthday present and so uh we start walking to i think we were walking to another hotel actually and then she started having second thoughts and she's like i don't know maybe we shouldn't do this and i said are you attracted to me? Do you like me? I'm like, I think you're really sexy. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to make this really easy for you. And I just picked her up over my shoulder and uh, like a caveman and started walking down the street and she just started laughing. And we walked maybe, I don't know, 50 feet. And she goes, put me down. And she goes, you just take whatever you want. And I said, yeah. And she goes, I'll go wherever you want to go. And then we end up going home. <laughs> we just hopped in a cab and went back. And I'm not suggesting if somebody's listening to this that they should just start grabbing people and throwing them over the shoulder. I was highly aware of where I was at with her. And yeah, she's great. Uh, she's a super nice girl. And I'd, I probably would have continued to date her if she lived in uh, in the same state as me, but she just lived a little too far. But sort of a funny story. Oh, yeah. And see that. The thing is, Chris, if she had said, no, put me down, seriously, I want to go home, you would have done it. In a second. Yeah. You'd been like, hey, I'm so sorry. What you did was not pushing a boundary. You were taking a vibe that was already there and trying to keep it going. And if she had said no, you would have gone along with the no. And that's really important. I do have a lot of men write to me about, you know, well, when does it become non-consensual and when is it just stalking the person or harassing the person because there are a lot of men uh, especially right now in um, the post me too world who are really and I got a lot of these letters before they want to be the good guy they want to do the right thing yes they want to have sex yes they want to have a woman in their lives maybe they want several women in their lives but they do not want to uh, harass offend or abuse someone and what I say is no always means no. And if a woman says no through her body language, as in she pushes you away, that's also no. Well, I'll say that before, I and mean, it's even before they push you away, you'll see tension, shifts in tension, shifts in breathing, facial expressions. There's all these cues even before somebody verbally says no or physically says no. So if you're aware, if, if you're a guy and you're listening to this, and girls too, I've had, I was talking to a buddy of mine and he was telling me a story about he was hanging out with two women and basically, they're at his house, other people around, they left and basically got sexually assaulted. And he goes, as a guy, you don't really say, 
like you, you tell your friends, they're like, oh, you got laid. That's awesome. Or, but he's like, honestly, because I look back at it, he goes, I, I didn't want to be in that situation. I didn't want to hook up with him. The girls sort of took it as liberty that, that I would want to hook up with him because they were women. He goes, I didn't. He goes, I was sexually assaulted. And he goes, I try to tell my friends that. And they're like, oh, you're a pussy. <laughs> but this is, there's people who are listening to this. They're going to be able to identify with this, but there's subtle cues. And if, if you're in a situation where you're with somebody, look for those subtle cues and absolutely no always means no, but there's also a lot of other signs before that, that also mean no. And if you're less concerned about your agenda and more concerned about sort of building a connection with another person, you're going to run into a lot less issues. Well, exactly. And what, as one of my clients said, his agenda is to have sex with someone who's really enthusiastic about it. Like he doesn't look for no, he looks for fuck yes. That's, that's fine. <laughs> Sorry to use that language. Yeah, it's okay. You, you can use it. You can you, feel free to use it. That's exactly what he looks for. He's like, you know, he, he said, as far as the me too thing, he said, I don't have those moments because I don't look for what can I get in this situation and uh, can I get away with it? And she didn't technically say no, so I'm going to push it. He says anything short of fuck yes, I can't wait. I want you so desperately is I'm not going there. Sounds like a, a good sort of metric to use. He only want he doesn't get turned on by just to him. He said if he just wanted an orgasm, he'd give give himself one. He what he loves is the seduction. He loves the the rush of feeling that he has caused this person to really desire him, and that they're in this together. He doesn't want something one sided where he's taking and sh and she's giving. He that's not appealing to him. And there is a correlation between a desire and perceived attractiveness. Or people who feel like somebody else desires them, in, in certain situations, they'll find that person more attractive. Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, so it's very controversial, this whole idea of being hard to get. But in fact, all over the world, it works fairly well for women because it holds men at arm's length who only want a short-term relationship. Men who want the short-term and only the short-term are really turned off by hard to get. So it jettisons those men, but men who are inclined to fall in love with a given woman fall harder and faster as a result of a woman being kind of hard to get. The caveat is this. A lot of women don't understand that that does not mean being cold, aloof, or bitchy. Hard to get just means that she engages the relationship at a slightly slower pace sexually and in other ways than he might want. That's all it means. So if I'm hard to get and a guy calls me, I answer my phone or, yeah, because I actually advise not texting and dating. So I'm going to stick with the, I know phone sounds, you know, like cave person days, but it's a better way to get to know people empirically. Anyway, I answer my phone with a smile in my voice and I say, oh my gosh, I am so happy to hear from you, Chris. This is so great. I don't act like I'm bored or uh, that, you know, you've interrupted something. I, I don't act rude and cold. If you take me out, I thank you for everything you've done that evening. And I laugh at your jokes if I find them funny. And I'm not, I'm not holding back. I'm just not getting as sexual as optimally the other party or even I might like as quickly as we might like. And that's a great sort of explanation. And I think that will provide clarification for a lot of people. It made me think of our clients within dating, especially the male ones. Our male clients tend to fall into one or two groups, either they are trying to figure out sort of who they are, how to express themselves and their masculinity. 
Um, and then you have the guys who are come off as sort of super alpha and they, they usually have a lot of status or power or a very sort of dominant mindset where they push through the world and they have trouble connecting with anyone. And the second group or the latter group, I find that they tend to like women who reject them more than the first group. So the first group, in my experience, they are looking for these subtle cues or very clear cues. A woman selects them and a woman picks them. A woman tells them that they think they're attractive or tells their friend that they think they're attractive. They're looking for these very clear signs because they're having trouble sort of navigating them or, or they're learning to navigate them. And then the other extreme, and there's a lot of guys in between, but these guys who are in between are less likely to end up in our classes, right? They're more likely to be more integrated and pick up enough of these cues that they're, they're figuring this out and solving the problem at a level that they feel adequate on their own. But the the latter group, they tend to, in my experience, tend to like women who reject them and feel like that's a big part of their attraction. They want to pursue, and it's not till they're rejected that they really begin to value somebody. They like those girls who are bitchy or aloof, and it's really interesting. So I have seen that. So I've seen this with women as well in a di slightly different way, but... Um, let's say that there's a woman who's just a full-on 10. She's walking through the world. She could be in a Victoria's Secret catalog tomorrow. In fact, she was in the Victor Victoria's Secret catalog. And lots of men will come up to her and say how beautiful she is. That's not a meaningful signal to her because she is empirically beautiful to everyone. And she's worried that men are going to like her solely for her appearance and not want to get to know her. So she's more likely to like the guy who not only pursues her for her beauty, but really tries to get to know her and listens carefully to her and her preferences and what she wants in life and shows that he has listened very deeply and is um, committed to whatever her wants are. Similarly, with a guy who's extremely high-powered, he's not surprised when women like him. All the women like him. He doesn't know if she likes him because he's rich and good-looking or what, right? So one of the things he looks for is a woman who can stand to live without him. She's got so much status, she can say no to all that. But I will say that, that in general, I found it very interesting. My clients who, guys who are maybe, you know, five foot six or five foot seven, um, have kind of a standard job, um, have all the psychological markers of a great mate, you know, generous, kind, respectful, really truly like women, not just for sexual partners, but they just like women as friends, um, as, as human beings, um, have good relationships with friends they've had for decades. These guys are my very short-term clients. And even though, you know, maybe they're just average looking, they don't have a fabulous job. The fact is they're good enough looking and they have absolutely everything else to offer that I don't see them having problems. My clients who are at the far end of the spectrum in terms of either beauty, if they are female or if they're gay men, or uh, it, that is if they're looking for a man, if they're really, really at the far end of beauty, they have a harder time finding someone who will connect with them in a deeper way. And my very, very rich, good-looking male clients have a harder time. Why do you think that is? For the reasons I was already stating, um, they 
don't quite trust that the women who are saying yes to them aren't just saying yes for a surface reason. We all want to be known and loved for who we really are. It's funny, I, I grew up being what I call good enough looking. And I had this cousin who was ridiculously beautiful. And I always felt that I was the luckier of the two because when boys liked me, they really liked me. Like they just thought I was great. They, they wanted to listen to everything I had to say. They thought I was hilarious and interesting and engaging. They wanted to be around me all the time. And I never had to ask myself, well, is it because I'm completely gorgeous? It, of course it wasn't that. There's a couple of things that come to mind. One is when somebody is incredibly beautiful, each situation is different, but there's less incentive for them to develop other facets of their personality, right? They can get by, you get into bars, you get into clubs, you get into parties, you get jobs based on your looks. So there's sort of less incentive to develop those other traits versus somebody who is more successful. Uh, two people, one person's a lot better looking than the other person, somebody, or even a little bit less, not quite as good looking, but they're, they end up being more successful. It's a chance that they had to develop other sort of characteristics of their personality that made them more attractive. Do you think there's an element of that? So I think probably everyone listening has met someone who was really beautiful until they opened their mouth. The thing is, the beauty got you close enough to find out that that's all there was, right? But it didn't keep you. All over the world, these studies suggest, well, they, in, my, in my view, they prove that character really counts, that having a pretty face or a, a large amount of money, it will get people to come close to you. And in some cases, you can get a person even to marry you over that, but it's a real surface relationship. If you want the stuff that real love is made of, it's always going to matter whether you have um, the following traits. Kindness and respectfulness, lovingness, loyalty. And then the fifth element would be intelligence that is approximately equal to your partner's. Not degrees that are equal to your partner's. I have three more degrees than my husband has, but we are peers. So having someone who's your intellectual peer, and then my students used to summarize, summarize this as kill, kind, intelligent loving, loyal, kind of respectful go together. But I will say um, there's really no place in the world that a person who is mean-spirited, cheating, uh, emotionally disloyal, feckless, dishonest, there's no place in the world where those people are in high demand, no matter how much money they have and no matter how good-looking they are. Do we, in fact, wind up having, say, some world leaders who are not very good people? And they still manage to get and stay married. Yeah, we do. One could argue that their relationships don't appear to be very close. Not the kind of marriage that I would seek. But yes, uh, if all you have going on for you is extreme beauty or a lot of resources, you can get a mate permanently. But getting love is a different thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it sort of goes back to what I was saying earlier about sort of this idea of perception of value. And I found that it's on individual cases, it's based on sort of needs and values, right? Somebody needs something or they feel like they need something or they value certain things. So if somebody values status or power, they are going to be attracted to status and power. That's what they perceive as being valuable. And as a general rule, maybe everybody or most people value 
these things, um, but some people value them more than others. And what, what you're talking about is sort of people who value not just finding somebody, but building a strong connection and building love, right? Um, building a partnership. And so the things that the qualities that you're describing, I mean, I think it's pretty clear people who are rich and powerful and, and really beautiful or tall, like end up with more potential mates for superficial reasons or potential mates for superficial reasons. And I can totally understand what you're talking about. This idea that either they start to question some of these people and they become more skeptical, or as I was sort of insinuating earlier, that in some cases they have to develop less components of the personality, but like, it doesn't equate when somebody's selecting for the, these more superficial qualities, it doesn't necessarily lead to better relationship outcomes. And what you're describing is sort of a framework for thinking about or approaching things in a way that's going to lead to better sort of relationship outcomes, hopefully. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, um, and you are correct. Some people, they just want somebody gorgeous and hot. Some people just want somebody rich who will just hand over the credit card or the bank accounts, but that's not most people. Around the world, most people, most of the time, want first and foremost character. You can't set somebody up and say, oh, their character's awesome. I mean, there has to be some level of surface qualities to get people to talk to each other usually. But for most people, that's not going to keep them. That's just, that's going to get you in the door. It's not going to keep you in the building. I think that's an absolutely great point. And I do have a couple more questions. And one is, you were talking about how there's a lot of guys who would immediately find partners or mates or girlfriends or women who would find boyfriends in another time, maybe in a hundred years ago in the United States where most people were marrying somebody who went to church or synagogue or mosque with them or lived in their building or on the same street. They were, geo was sort of a more important factor than it is maybe today with online dating. What are your thoughts on why it's become harder for men who in the past would have been great catches to attract the right person. I think we're spoiled for choice. I think that um, the internet is really a wonderful tool for finding a mate in many regards, but it also gives people the perception that we have unlimited options. And so we don't give people of quality as close a look as we might have. As I said to one of my, um, female clients who allowed me to quote her in my upcoming book, um, when she was talking about the man she is now married to. And she said, well, you know, he's kind of small and I'm not really that attracted to him and I don't really want to kiss him or flirt with him. But, uh, but you know, we did close the restaurant down and talk for six hours. And what I said to her was, in case you need the reminder, someone you enjoy talking with for six hours is worth another look. Attraction can build from that. We've all known people where the attraction was there and then you got bored stiff and you you weren't attracted to them anymore, but things can move the opposite direction too. And so, you know, I said, you're not physically repulsed by him, which tells me that this could grow. I mean, if, if there's revulsion there, then that's a, just a no. But if you're finding his personality attractive and you're not repulsed by him, don't jump the gun and just de facto decide that you're not going to go out with this guy again. This is somebody to give a close look to because the best people don't always sparkle right away. And by about the fourth date, she was liking him pretty well. And um, he just did these wonderful things for her that just won her heart and won mine too. I really was rooting for that relationship. They're very happily married. 
Um, but she would not have given him another shot. This perfectly wonderful man would never have had a shot with her. And the reason would have been because she felt like she had an endless array of other options. I think it's a great point. There's also a couple other things that I've observed that I think are related to it. Although the medium allows you to see into another human being, it doesn't really showcase uh, a human being the way that you can showcase yourself when you're in person. That's sort of one thing, right? And there's all these other, I mean, you can use sight, you can see what somebody looks like, but there are other things when you're closer to somebody and the pictures are not doctored or whatever, not only will sight be affected, but also your other senses, the way somebody smells, their level of emotional intelligence, their behavior, the way they touch you, the sense of touch, uh, the, the way that somebody tastes. There's sort of all these other variables that are affected by your senses that I think are, are important in building a bond. That's sort of one thing. Another thing that comes to my mind is just the idea of scale. And I look at sort of pop stars and on social media, and some of them now have over 100 million followers on platforms like Twitter and Instagram. And they, they have millions of adoring fans who perceive them as being valuable or attracted to them, who some of them fantasize that if they got the chance, they might hook up with them. But all that means is that music scales. Right. And in the same way as we found with Instagram, look scale. If that plan f- platform didn't exist, then, uh, or sorry, if scaled music didn't exist, if we couldn't broadcast music over TV and radio and the internet, then people still love music. You might have a crush on the girl or boy, the local singer or musician in your neighborhood. And so what happens is, is it's sort of like his skewed modern mating, right? You hear somebody through the internet who, or see somebody through the internet who has, is maybe like the top 0.01% of something as opposed to somebody who's in the top 10 percentile who you, you would have fallen all over yourself to meet in another time period um, because they were somebody from your neighborhood. Does this make any sense? Yeah. While you're saying this, what I'm thinking about is the phenomenon where male movie stars and singers exponentially increase their mating pool, but female movie stars and singers do not. Talk about that. That's interesting. So, um, in fact, as women increase in achievement, status, and uh, education, their mating pool shrinks because of two things. First of all, most men want to be with someone who's on their same level. And second of all, most women want to be with someone who's on their same level or higher. Why do you think that is? Well, it's what we were talking about earlier. Women uh, of the ancient past who, you know, Back when we were cave people, which is really truly where our mating site comes from, at a visceral level, if a woman failed to secure a provider or protector who could offer ongoing resources and devotion, she and her children might very well die. Pregnancy in itself was really risky, so you didn't really want to risk this with someone that um, you didn't bond with who wouldn't stay with you too. You just didn't want to take that risk. And everywhere in the world, women are much more reticent to have casual sex than men are. In fact, I used to show this video in my classes of a study that was done in England and then it was done here in the US and, or maybe it was vice versa. It was done first, I think, at Florida State University and then it was done in a university in England. And in the second instance, um, they actually had a hidden video camera that that allowed people to see in real time what the results were. So the study was that a man and a woman of equal physical attractiveness went around campus and they propositioned members of the opposite sex. And here's what they were allowed to say. 
I've seen you around campus. I find you very attractive. I'm wondering if you'd like to sleep with me tonight. So when women approached men, more than half said yes. And when men approached women, no one said yes. Can you sort of expand on why? Well, you know, again, our mating psychology comes from ancient times, not now. So right now, it, it doesn't make much sense in, in a current mating context because right now there's less stigma in the westernized world about women having casual sex than there ever has been. Um, the social costs are not that high. Pregnancy is pretty easy to prevent. STIs are a lot easier to pr prevent than they used to be. So from that standpoint, it seems like you'd have at least some takers from women, right? At least some of them would say yes. Uh, it also was very interesting that when men said no, they always had an excuse like, I've already got a girlfriend or, um, or I would, but I have exams tomorrow. And they seemed genuinely regretful. And they had, men felt like they had to explain themselves for saying no to sex with a woman. But women never felt like they had to explain themselves. They would look at the guy. I mean, I, again, I've seen the footage. They would, they'd make these faces of disgust and say, are you crazy? I wonder how much of this is cultural. Uh, well, the study, again, has been done um, cross-culturally. I want to emphasize that it really, Chris, it really doesn't matter how you do this research. Truly, it doesn't matter how you do it. What I mean is across cultures, there are cultural incentives for women. They're directly connected to sort of the biological risk uh, during sex. Um, whether it's safety issues or the consequences of pregnancy across cultures, there, there's reasons why women should be more re reticent or reluctant to have sex. Even now today, that is true. And there's still, there's still social pressure on women even today. It, there's less pressure in the westernized world than there has been in the past. But, you know, that varies between, say, Austin, Texas and East Texas. There's going to be a lot more pressure in East Texas for women to um, have sex only with the man they're actually going to marry or only with very few partners compared to around the campus of UT Austin. Um, so there, I'm not trying to say culture is irrelevant. I'm saying that the pattern of findings of women being less motivated toward casual sex than men are, and it doesn't matter how you look at it. Uh, you find this pattern everywhere in the world. For example, everywhere in the world that the, this question has been asked, men give a higher number than women. The, the question is, over your lifetime, how many partners would you like to have sex with? I, I agree with that. And I absolutely believe the science. When I say cultural, I mean, within every culture, there is biological drivers, even in situations where uh, you have medical advancements that make someone less likely to have STD. They have access to uh, birth control. They have access to abortion. There's still... Um, at every one of those levels, there's reasons for women to be more conservative in choosing their sexual partners. That's the first thing. And, and the second thing, from the guy's perspective, are you implying that men are giving these excuses because uh, they actually want to have the sex? And, and that might absolutely be the case. And, but I'm also, I also think part of the reason, my instinct is part of the reason, is there is a cultural pressure where guys are supposed to want women. So when I say cultural, I'm not uh, arguing against the data. I'm sure that's what the data says. What I'm interested in is if I pull two or three layers back, what is somebody feeling and sort of what are the things, whether it's biological or cultural, that are driving those feelings? I think it's a both-and world. 
you know, you and I are extrapolating from the data and guessing at why. Science is really good at saying what. It's a little less good sometimes at saying why. I think you're right. My impression from talking with men and women um, is that men are more inclined to actually want casual sex with a very beautiful woman who approaches them and that they're also more inclined to feel that they don't actually have the right to say no. That was sort of what I was getting at. And I don't know what what those numbers are. Every case is going to be different. But I just like, I feel in my experience of coaching, my experience through life, I feel like both of those are variables. I mean, it, it happens in casual conversation where a guy goes back and tells their friends and their friends are like, you pussy, what's wrong with you? You should hook up with her. Like, And that has an emotional effect, whether the guy admits it or not. And so it's interesting how these behaviors are nurtured. And I think I have male clients who are like, they make George, they put George Clooney in the shade. I really and truly have some male clients like that, where they are such the total package. They have everything. And women offer them sex on a daily basis. And they say no, and they cannot tell. They'll say to me, you're the only person I can tell about this because I get ridiculed by my male friends for saying no to women. This is funny. I, I was one time Again, I don't know why I'm sharing all these personal stories, but one time I was at lunch. I went to lunch with this girl and I was in absolutely extraordinary shape at the time. And she was just a, a vendor. I was in finance. She was a vendor and I thought it was a work meeting. And afterwards, at the end of the work, the meeting, she, she goes, I need to be honest with you. And I said, what's that? And she goes, I want to fuck you. And I Whoa. was like, what? And she goes, I want to fuck you. And, and so I, I was so shocked. I didn't, at that time, I was a lot more inhibited than I am today. I was a lot younger guy and, I remember not knowing what to do. And I sort of froze for a second and I, I laughed and I, I leaned back and I said, I can't blame you. And it, it and, <laughs> and it, it was, it was, I, I, I do me too. <laughs> it was purely out of, it was, I said it purely out of anxiety. And I pulled this because I remember one time I pulled this from a cousin of mine. I remember guys, we're talking about guys sort of the way they negotiate hierarchy. And one of them was like a lot of younger guys can be homophobic. And so, like somebody was telling my cousin, oh, that guy's checking you out. And he looked over and he goes, I can't blame him. And I was like, oh, that's the best line. And so years later, I, I used this line with this girl. But the truth is, I just didn't know how to react. And uh, I went back and I told my boss, I'm like, oh, I had the weirdest lunch with uh, so-and-so. And he's like, well, what happened? And and, and yeah, so, but the, I mean, that even got into a weird situation. I mean, the, if, it, if this ever went public, who it was, the guy probably would have got fired at the time. But I mean, and the reason I'm sharing this is I'm not going to say anyone's names. But the reason why I'm sharing this is because it's interesting how people behave. He actually was working on my computer later on. And this is a guy who makes made two and a half million dollars a year, made a lot of money, was had a lot of power in our in our community. He goes, hey, can you get me something off the printer? I go, sure. And he emailed that girl from my computer that I wanted to hook up with her. And then he did the next, that was on a Friday night, Monday morning, she came in and he goes, he freaked out and he goes, get to my office now. And he goes to my office and he goes, check your computer. I did something that you need to, you need to know what happened. And so I went back and I looked and I saw that he had sent a message to her telling from me saying that I want to hook up with her. I mean, that would have got him fired. It was a big corporation. Oh, yeah. But, um, but it also goes back to another sort of, uh, thing that we were talking about earlier about when people are in positions of power, they oftentimes will have an increased range of behavior. And sometimes that, behavior can get somebody into trouble. Well, it can. And it also brings up um, a point that, you know, when women have casual sex, when they do choose a casual sex partner, and they know that it's just going to be casual sex, a lot of times the reason is that this man has distinguished himself in some way that indicates uh, 
frankly, we now know scientifically better genetic potential for surviving children who thrive. So in Liverpool, England, there were Beatles babies. Women would actively attempt to have sex with one of the Beatles for the purpose of getting pregnant. They knew that these guys were not going to be their husbands or their boyfriends. They just wanted their kids. So it's not the case that women are invariably conservative with their sexuality. It's just that they are careful, even in, I would say, especially in their choice, usually of casual sexual partners. Um, the reason that I've had clients who have to turn women down on a daily basis is these are men who have differentiated themselves at such a level uh, that they they have it going on and very likely they would produce amazing children. So, you know, it, it, science is not very good at explaining why one person is different from all the others. It's much better explaining the trends of how most people are going to behave most of the time. Uh, I will say that very interestingly, there's research that shows that how young women are when they choose to become mothers, if they get a choice in the matter, uh, how young they are is based on their expected lifespan. This is not conscious, but communities where girls have children very young are also the same communities where lifespan is very short or shorter. And so um, if they don't take the opportunity to cast their genes forward while they're young, they're not going to get an opportunity. I want to make one more comment and I have one last question and we'll wrap up. I would go on in that, but again, I want to be respectful of your time. I, I found that as I get older, what I'm attracted to has changed based on my partners. So there's definitely a type of woman that I find that I'm attracted to. But also, as you described earlier, you said sometimes you, you date somebody and the more you date them, the more things that you find that you like about them. I find that my past partners have affected what I find attractive. And and the first time I became really conscious of this, I was dating a girl and I remember I, I didn't really like her hair and she had big, curly, crazy hair. And after we broke up, I was attracted to anybody who had hair even remotely like her. And so um, I sort of became conditioned to find some of these traits that she had attractive as the relationship developed. And I built a stronger bond to her. I sort of, some of those things I found attractive carried over to other women, whether I knew them or not. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I always tell my husband that he's ruined me for other men. He really has. I mean, he's older than I am. And if he dies first, uh, I've said, you know, he says, oh, you'd find someone else. And I would say, well, that's all, that's really immaterial whether I would find somebody else because uh, I like so many things about him that I feel like, oh, I couldn't find somebody that was as one of my friends said, who lost his wife really young, they were in their early 30s when she passed away. Uh, he didn't date for a long time. And he said uh, it was because he couldn't forgive other women for not being her. That's very powerful. That's the kind of love that I think we all want. And if science is any indicator, and I think it is, it is possible for most of us. I mean, that's absolutely beautiful. And I think if people are listening to this, that's a great goal to work towards. And this is going to be my final question. Earlier, you mentioned provider and protector. And we're living in a, in a world where there's a lot of changes. I live in an urban area in Brooklyn where you have a lot of really successful women who are in entrepreneurship. I was at an event the other day and I was talking to a girl. And as we started talking, I found out that she is a founder of 
like one of the biggest online media companies. They raised like 50 million bucks. And I'd met her boyfriend. Her boyfriend walked up, started talking to a boyfriend. And her boyfriend is like an unemployed musician and not even like a famous musician, just sort of a guy trying to get by. And I've seen situations like that more and more. And you mentioned earlier how, I forget exactly the way you described it, but women who are more successful, they have more status, sometimes have trouble finding mates. I've had this many conversations with women who are really educated and they say that they go on dates with guys and they tell them where they went to school and the guys shut down. And oftentimes I think on an emotional level, what's happening is the guys feel like they might be being judged for being less educated or whatever. And so they start to shut down. Their behavior becomes more inhibited because they're worried about judgment and sort of these behavioral hierarchies, uh, psychological hierarchies sort of come into play. We, we sort of talked about that. But in a world where you're getting some of these changes, where the woman you're dating might make more money than you or might have more status or power, what does it mean to provide and protect? This is an excellent question, and it really gets at the heart of a very important social trend right now. So research shows that of the bachelor's degrees being awarded throughout the country, two in three of those go to women right now, which means that there are many many more well-educated women than well-educated men in our country at this moment. And this is a crisis because just like the Mormon women want to have a Mormon guy to marry, and so the fact that a lot of men leave the Mormon church and there are a small pool left for all these women to compete to have, because women don't generally lower their standards very often, what happens is a lot of these women wind up without a long-term mate. They wind up without the love they really want. The other direction of this is that a lot of men feel very insecure if they feel that they can't provide even more than the woman that they're with. They feel that um, she might leave them for someone who can, and they're not willing to invest deeply in a scenario where they think they might be left at some point for another guy. And so that feeling of discomfort combined with women wanting a man who generally has the same level of education creates kind of the perfect storm for mating right now. And I really don't know what the answer is going to be because the, the advice actually uh, is pretty clear, but I'm not sure how workable it is. Um, the advice that I would give to men is be open to dating women where you feel comfortable with them regardless of the demographics. Notice how you feel when you're with them, independent of the demographics, and see if that can work out. Also see if your peers, but not exact equals. So what I mean by this is maybe you, the guy, are a master craftsman carpenter. And um, this is actually my stepmom and my, excuse me, my stepdad and my mom. My stepdad is a master craftsman carpenter from Vienna. He built Emmett Smith's staircase. He did the Judd's woodwork inside their house. He's the, he's the man when it comes to this kind of work. He, he's the man. My mom has a master's degree. My stepdad doesn't have any degrees, but I would argue that they're equivalently educated in their fields and uh, that, you know, they find one another interesting to talk to. And that's what I encourage people to do is look past whether they check the box of they have exactly this kind and this number of degrees and look for someone who's your peer. And 
some people find that really difficult advice to take. I took the advice. I'm very happily married. I've definitely heard from women, especially because a lot of this seems to be driven more by women refusing to quote unquote settle than by men. Um, I have talked to women who have said that since reading my book, they've realized that there was someone they already know that they were not considering because he had everything they were looking for, except he didn't have quite as many degrees or the kind of degree they thought he should have. And they realized they were keeping themselves from happiness and they stopped doing that. And now they're very happily married. So, uh, but I'll tell you, a lot of people don't like that advice. I have gotten actual hate mail from people who have said that, um, yeah, I'm happily married, but it's only because I settled and I'm desperate. Well, I don't view what I did as settling, though. I view it as stopping overvaluing certain demographics and instead valuing things that I know from my experience in life, because you're 37, I'm 49. I was 39 when Vic and I married. I know, knew at that point from my experience what I had to have to be happy and what was just a detail. And he has everything that I had to be happy. And by the way, he's no slouch when it comes to intellect or provision. I think it's an absolutely awesome example. And when I hear what you're describing is a person who became less concerned with external validation and more concerned with the things that they internally valued. And it sounded like your values were in the right place as opposed to sort of these superficial ornamentation that we acquire through, through the course of our lives. So I think that your story is a great example. And I think that in my opinion, your advice sounds incredibly sound. Dr. Welch, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been an absolute pleasure. If you would like to find more about Dr. Welch, we're going to post some links uh, on the website and in the description of the podcast so that you can find out about her more easily and you can check out her books. Hopefully we can get you to come back on and we can get into more detail about your books because I know I wanted to do that today and we sort of went off in some other directions. But thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. And I thought everywhere we went was a fun place to go. I look forward to going a new place next time. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I gotta do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Charisma website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.